on air. We're not drawn necessarily and singularly to the crypto markets. What we're drawn to is the the emergence of tokenization uh, for our customers' needs significantly around the institutional customer base. This is On Air by ANZ Institutional. We bring you the latest market-leading analysis and thought leadership from more than 30 global markets, giving you the information you and your business needs to thrive. Welcome, everyone, to the latest in our series of conversations ahead of Cybos. Today, we're talking digital currencies. With us, we have Nigel Dobson, Banking Services Lead at ANZ. Morning, Nigel. Good morning. Nice to see you. We also have Jackie Coleman, Head of Payments Industry at ANZ Institutional. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning. I'd like to start by asking how stablecoin and the broader digital currency movement is developing in the institutional space. Nigel, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, look, I think... The digital currency space has been fascinating for some years, and, and we've been looking at it um, from a, a learning a point of view um, for the, the last couple of years to say, well, what is happening in particular in the DeFi markets, what's happening in uh, cryptocurrencies and the, the exchanges and the infrastructure that's built up and grown around those. And then our observation was um, most recently that the um, about 50% of crypto transactions are now in stablecoin. And that was a compelling statistic when you think about the growth of cryptocurrencies in terms of valuation, when you think about the number of people who own cryptocurrency, potentially 20% of the Australian population, it's, it's said, um, hold a, a crypto wallet and um, own and potentially trade um, crypto. So, you know, it's not a small number of people involved globally in this in this enterprise. And when you look at stablecoins and their, their, their role in the, the crypto industry, in the DeFi industry, they've played an increasingly important role. And we looked at that and said, well, you know, a, a bank-issued stablecoin could be a really interesting proposition. But, but our, uh, the other part of our um, strategy is also to recognise that the uh, emergence of tokenization of assets is really what's drawing us towards this. We're not drawn necessarily and singularly to the crypto markets. What we're drawn to is the, the emergence of tokenization. Uh, for our customers' needs, for um, the needs of our retail and commercial customers, by the way, but at the moment significantly around the institutional customer base. And this tokenization um, megatrend, which we think is happening, um, is something which we've looked at from a financial market infrastructure point of view. And when we look, think about FMIs, we today we use you know internet protocols and, and automated um, transactions with central infrastructures to um, execute and settle transactions. And we see out there in the in the DeFi space and the crypto markets, ways different ways of um, addressing transactions, settling transactions, and and securing them. Um, and the it, it it occurred to us that the this financial market infrastructure was an evolution of our current um, better known centralized infrastructure. And it could well be that it it might be beneficial to explore that. Uh, it might be cheaper, it might be faster, it could be better. Um, all of these proof points have yet to be fully diagnosed and, and, and verified. But there's a very strong thesis that decentralised networks um, and a, a range of services that sit around those with standards um, and digital tokens could be a very important um, emerging market for, for banks. And where do we play? Um, the issuance of our stablecoin is in recognition, not that payments need to be improved, but that digital assets need to exchange and trade in an efficient way. And there is a great demand for a, a digital currency which represents not some privately issued cryptocurrency, but rather our Australian dollar. 
And it was that realization that there is a there is a demand for a digital version, a tokenized version of Australian dollars that drew us into this um, work and has, has since been validated because our customers are saying, well, that's great. We can use that in our uh, digital asset exchanges. We can use the tokenization benefits that are associated with this to digitize some of the assets, both physical and digital, that we have in our supply chains and our production lines. And that opens up a whole range of possibilities for us. Jackie, Nodal mentioned payments. From a payments perspective, how are we seeing that sort of develop in the market? I think it's a really important point that it's not about payments. Yeah, payments is sort of secondary. Payments is one function of money or assets. It's one thing you do with it. And so I think when it comes to payments, we have to look at the whole spectrum and see that payments is actually just the, a component of the conversation. So, you know, you've got to think, we're talking about tokenization, when we're talking about digital currencies, we're talking about tokenization of coins or a currency. There's tokenization of all kinds of assets. And when you're talking about the currency, you know, what's giving it its value? And as Nigel said, with a, with a stable coin, you know, it's it's backed on a real asset and it's backed on, you know, the Australian dollar in, in our case. What does the rise of these kind of payments mean for other existing and emerging forms of payments? So is it an and or situation? You know, how may the development of this sort of impact some of the payment systems that exist and that we might take for granted? Yeah, so, you know, I think it is absolutely an and, not an or, um, for a a very long foreseeable period of time and possibly forever. Um, I think there's a lot of unknown in terms of, you know, the use cases and what is really going to get traction, um, what's going to get adoption. At my view, it's inevitable that they're going to stable coins and, and digital coins will exist alongside our payment systems today. Um, and, and also, while that fight currency is that primary legal tender, we need smooth on and off ramps for that. So, um, yeah, I, I think just straightforward answer to the question is absolutely they will coexist. Yeah, I think they will. And, and you know, I think where, where our, our A$DC is going to play um, most notably is in venues where digital assets are, uh, are the native, um, you know, um, form of transaction. You know, digital assets need digital currency to settle efficiently on-chain. And, and Jackie just mentioned off-ramps. I mean, you eliminate off-ramps. That's the point. Um, because if you have to off-ramp into a traditional payment system to settle a digital asset um, transaction, that is time-consuming, expensive, uh, uncertain, uh, which is why, precisely why, um, the major stablecoins of the world exist today to um, avoid that um, eventuality. And so whilst there are traditional transactions occurring in the economy, which we will see for the absolute foreseeable future, where you'll find those natively digital um, transactions that require a stablecoin will be the venues like the metaverse. Now, people look at the, think about the metaverse today and go, oh, that's just that thing people talk about. No one knows what it is. ANZ Worldline just uh, announced that they were opening up and working with a customer of theirs in the metaverse, right? I mean, this is happening. Um, I had a, convers- a conversation with some people yesterday, and they were talking, you know, what is the metaverse and how do we define it? No one actually had the right answer, but there's no wrong answer either. Um, it's a spectrum of digital interactions. And the, the more embedded they are in, in digital assets like NFTs, the more there will be a demand for a native coin or a native means of settlement that enables transactions to occur in the virtual world. And that's at one end of the spectrum. And then there'll be things like, well, let's tokenize bonds and equities. Why would you do that? Well, because it's more efficient operationally, all right? Um, you have to have a business case to do that. And so we're talking to a number of exchanges, for example, that say, well, if we could tokenize our, our you know, traditional assets like bonds and equities, 
that would allow us to settle in T plus zero, almost real time, as opposed to T plus two. Is that better? Is it faster? Is it cheaper? Yes, it is. Um, you need the will of the, um, the community to move forward, though, on that. And so you've got to start with areas where potentially there aren't any big incumbents, where there is an immature infrastructure. That's led us to consider very um, strongly the, the potential for um, carbon credits and their revolution in Australia and, of course, globally. Um, it's an immature market. It's emerging very quickly. We see that the demand for that asset class is going to increase exponentially over the next five to ten years. And here's a perfect technology which can allow the tokenization of those assets and the exchange of those with the digital coins to occur in venues that are highly efficient, visible, and have also the ability to verify the credentials of those credits as well. So that's that's open space for us, I think. And what you're talking about, Nigel, and getting excited about mm-hmm. is solving a real problem. Yes. We're not just using the technology because it sounds cool and playing around with it because, you know, those guys over there are we're actually solving real problems for customers that what we've got today doesn't solve as well. Can we talk about how the Australian market is developing and, and how it sort of compares to maybe what's happening around the world? Yeah, look, I think Australia is in the mix of leading nations around um, digital currency. I certainly, there's a, there's a contingent of central banks who are very uh, interested and, and progressive in, in terms of the work around central bank digital currency. And my belief around central bank digital currency is it's, it's come from a threat, not from an opportunity. It's come from the, the threat that private money will threaten the monetary sovereignty of a, of a country. It'll potentially destabilise that monetary system. It, um, it might um, increase um, consumer risk and all these types of um, things, which are, which are well worth um, you know, protecting and fighting for. But the CBDCs themselves seem to be a, a reactive um, you know, posture and, and have a defensive kind of strategy attached to them. Whereas the, the bank-issued stable coins or even the non-bank-issued stable coins um, have come about from an opportunistic point of view to say, that here's a commercial need um, and we'll go after that because there's demand. And so whilst the two, I believe, will coexist, and I think in Australia we're seeing uh, our RBA is very active around experimenting with CBDC through the uh, Digital Finance um, Cooperative Research Centre that was announced. That's going to be a really important piece of work. We're seeing other countries um, look at um, central bank digital currencies, particularly in Europe, the UK, um, Singapore, and also the US increasingly. So major economies are definitely taking this seriously. Um, still, I believe, from that somewhat defensive uh, posture. But that's that's not a bad place, right? It's still um, good thinking and good work goes into that. Um, and then you've got the, you know, you've got to reconcile that with the recent sort of meltdown of, <laughs> of the crypto world, which is a lot of people are going, well, you know, we told you that wasn't going to work. But really, that's just a valuation fluctuation. It's, that doesn't, it doesn't destabilize or, or um, you know, disable the, the thesis that um, decentralized networks um, can be very efficient and that they can also be secure and scale. And particularly if there are standards um, that are emerging, which they are, then those are the things that we recognise in our industry and banking as useful uh, to, to enable communications across many geographies. Yeah, and standards standards equals interoperability. And when you're talking about payments, exactly. yeah, I sound like a broken record when I talk about payments and network and interoperability, but it's the fundamental... Um, feature of payments or need for payments is that need for interoperability. So standards will enable that. I think one of the real values of a a tokenized currency is that it removes that clunky clearing settlement 
reconciliation. Um, and so you have transactions you know, from a payment perspective. It's cleared, settled, and reconciled in real time. And so that's a real kind of exciting thing. But you can get that through a stablecoin. You can get that through a CBDC. So mm-hmm. if we come back to that, I think a lot of the previously highlighted use cases for CBDC don't necessarily apply in Australia, or they're not major problems in Australia. We have a, a really largely banked population. We have a really strong real-time payment system. Um, and so it's really looking at, well, what are the benefits of a CBDC versus a stablecoin, which is exactly what the RBA is proposing to do is it's looking at use cases. So I think, you know, there's been work going on around the globe through, um, led by SWIFT, led by the BIS. There's Project Dunbar, which um, proved, I guess, the technical feasibility of of a multi-CBDC platform. So you had Australia, Malaysia, um, Singapore, South Africa on that, and, and it all works, but we sort of know that it's technically feasible. It's great to prove it. Um, but what we also know is that technology doesn't remove the risks. It's actually about the business side and, and business driven. And that's why that work that the RBA is doing is so important because it takes the business lens. It goes, well, what are the use cases mm. and the problems that we're actually going to solve? Yeah, that's right. I mean, look what Jackie says about the synchronized clearing and settlement is profound, right? As is 24-7, right? We've got 24-7 domestic markets. Um, here in payments, right, through the MPP, but we don't have it a 24-7 global market for payments yet. Um, and that alone, you know, is would be a huge leap forward. Um, and, you know, centralised networks don't need to go home and, and, and spend time with their families, but bankers do, right? And so, you know, you get this, this, this um, obvious step forward where an always-on ecosystem can exist uh, and exchange value, not just digital coins, but also digital assets, um, and have atomic settlement, which is another profound advance, I think. So quickly, atomic settlement is when two assets exchange, but the finality of those two only occurs uh, should they both uh, move from their, their state to the, to the next state, which is I own it, now I'm giving it to Shane, Shane's giving it to me, and that happens simultaneously, two assets exchange, settlement occurs, and they're locked on a blockchain, and that is finality. That happens in real time, atomic settlement. In fact, I don't even need to know you, right? I just need to know there's an asset for sale and I can buy that because I don't have any counterparty risk because I know I'm going to get the the asset and the transaction can't finalise unless I do. And that's why you have clearinghouses today to make sure that counterparties behave well. But when you have an automated system that can verify the exchange of assets from one party to another... I don't even have to know you. I mean, it's useful if I do, and, our, and certainly our regulators would like us to. But the, the, the point of atomic settlement is that it can occur and, and synchronise clearing and settlement effectively. It can then reduce, if not um, eliminate, counterparty risk. And your transactions are, are locked and secured and settled in real time. Now, why wouldn't you want to do that? What's the risk environment like at the moment and how do we see that developing so, I mean, when we're talking about stable coins, very different to kind of cryptocurrency. And I do think a balanced approach that continues to develop and invest in existing payment systems alongside stable coins is appropriate. And at least until stable coins become widely adopted, interoperable. And, you know, how do you get to that point of this is the norm and, and you know, this is ubiquity. I think this is where regulation really, really comes in because we talk about customer protection and, um, you know, that's where CBDC is often seen as as the answer to that. 
But if you actually have really good regulation, strong regulation, you have that safety rail for all kinds of innovation. Um, and it helps to do new things without creating the systemic risk that we are all worried about. So the right regulation actually supports and drives innovation. And I think this, you know, if it's the same activity, then the same regulation should... Yep, same risk, should, same rules, right? right. And, and we've had that conversation with our regulators, you know, same risk, same rules. Now, the, the tough part around that is to, is to show how the, the risk is the same, right? And to bring the narrative down to, well, if I issue a stable coin, what am I really doing? I'm just changing the form factor of that money. Um, and, and to their great credit, APRA have already said, you know, it's like stored value facility. And then they're, they're dead right. It is. And stored value facility is regulated differently to payments. And, you know, you think about all the different regulations depending on what you're doing. This is going to apply in the same way. But people, I think we just haven't gotten our head quite yes. around that yet. Yes. But when we're talking about the use of stable coins for payments, then payment regulation. It, precisely, right. And, and and so the conversation with regulators is, is a very, very, um, you know, constructive one. And, and and it's always pushing the boundaries of, well, what's different? You know, what's really different? Yeah, sure, the infrastructure is different, different service providers. You know, certainly there's a there's a range of service providers that um, they're not familiar with. You know, it's not Swift and it's not, you know, Finestra. It's 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 the or IBM. You know, the household names of, of, of bank technology, right? It's it's Fireblocks and it's Chainalysis and it's Open Zeppelin. And they're going, well, who are these people? <laughs> you know, um, and you know, these are these are enterprise grade players who many of whom are you know, former bankers, former regulators, former security experts. Um, and they've, um, you know, decided that there is a huge opportunity in this space, but they're bringing their, their real world expertise to, to bear on smart contracts and, and custodial infrastructure and the technology that you need and the services you need to support this new form of financial market infrastructure. And we get a lot of confidence from that. We just have to demonstrate to our regulators that, that these are reputable players, they're doing the right thing, they understand the risks, and we can report on these risks probably better than we can, certainly cash. <laughs> cash is basically invisible. Uh, and pro quite probably better than our current you know, AML CTF screening processes through traditional means. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it's about on lifting the mystery and the veil because everyone thinks something's risky if they don't understand it. Mm. it so it's really digging under and explaining and showing the similarities to what we do today. And yeah, there are differences, but this is where they're different. So I think, you know, as you say, we've got really productive conversations with our regulators. Um, we're really lucky to have that and they're leaning in. And that's always really helpful because then they, they understand, they understand the risk profile and the regulating in the right way. But we couldn't innovate, we couldn't do this stuff without the regulators and yeah. regulation. You just you just couldn't. So um, it's great to have them. No, it is. And, and as I say, they they ask great questions, and their questions are getting better. And the one that we that we that we kind of still are, are wrestling with is this. It's a bit of it's the curse of transparency, right? I mean, uh, c contrasting cash to a digital asset, right? You know, cash comes out of the wall of an ATM and then forever will not be seen, right? We have no idea where that cash is being used and for what purposes until it returns to us through a through a branch. Or a transaction, and and we're all fine with that. We all seem comfortable with that. Yeah, I know there's there's rules and regulations around reporting and a whole range of th you know infrastructure that that supports the you know the perceived risk of that. But <clears throat> what we have with digital assets, of course, is extreme traceability. And and so, how far does one trace a digital asset like our coin 
uh, and for, for what period, right? So if, if, if ANZ's $8 DC is used for a transaction on a digital exchange and that finds its way to party A, then party A, B, C, D, how, how, how many letters of the alphabet do we have to go before we agree a perimeter beyond which ANZ's liability is extinguished for the use of that coin? It's a very, very tough question to answer. because So we have this perimeter question which says, how many hops? Um, and what are my obligations at, at letter Y after it's gone through you know, many, many transactions, even though it's still redeemable at A and Z? Um, and those are the questions we're wrestling with. Now, you can't trace to the letter Y with cash, but because you actually can, and we can, in fact, um, employ a pause or even a blacklist type um, or even a burn function on the coin, so we actually have quite significant amount of control over that coin should we de just determine it's being used for you know, a bad act by a bad actor. And with great power comes great responsibility, well, right? There you go. <laughs> exactly. So that's the conundrum, right? Um, so we've, we've kind of got this, as I say, the curse of transparency, right? Um, and what are the extent of our obligations? $8 DC, if we could talk about that really briefly, um, how is it developing? What's the impact been like? And what are the big things on the horizon? Well, the $8 DC got um, attention mainly because we launched it on a public permissionless blockchain. There were many banks um, well in advance of us who'd issued coins, JP Morgan, Citibank, et cetera, who had done it on private permissioned environments, right, which, which is much easier to do. And, and, and there are a lot of good reasons why you would do that. Um, but our view was that where is all the activity happening? Where are the standards being set? Um, where is the developer community focusing its attention and where are digital assets being created? And the final point is really important because, as I said at the outset, we didn't create our coin to be a payment instrument. We created our coin to allow the settlement and, 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 and change of ownership of digital assets in the future with the thesis that um, many of our customers would choose to tokenize uh, a, a, a large portion of their supply chain, their assets, their, 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 their digital and non-digital assets for their customers. And in fact, um, probably breed new business models. Um, so we, fi we figured that if a, if a coin can interact um, on the right standards and the right venues, um, issuing on a public permissionless blockchain that we did, that raised eyebrows because everyone said, oh, banks have never done that before. Why wouldn't you use a private permissioned safe and sound and you know um but this was a, a more courageous step so that gave us the attention <clears throat> that has i guess gone around the world a couple of times and we've had a lot of people come in and say well why did you do that and it's precisely because we don't think of it as a payment instrument now, i don't know i'm going to keep on repeating myself on this shane but you know it's really important that that, that we that we that we kind of get that um understanding that you know the coin exists for the 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 purpose of uh, supporting the digital asset economy. Um, and, and if we believe that that's going to occur, then that's the purpose of the coin. So as I said earlier, we know we've done work in, um, we just met with the, the customers actually, Convergence Tech, who, who uh, we work with to tokenize alcohol for the distilling industry. And they wanted to use our coin to settle the, the smart contract, which came off of the, the tokenized alcohol, um, which enabled an excise payment to the ATO. It's groundbreaking, right? Um, and a real example of a real-world sort of um, situation where tokenization can, can add benefit of autom automation and, and certainty. But then our coin plays with that very nicely. Um, what we're doing next, as I said, is around the carbon markets. We think those, those are ripe for um, 
uh, I guess, scaling and um, building more resiliency into those. Now, we're not going to do it alone, but we do talk to people who are increasingly um, interested in the idea of tokenized carbon credits. Again, we, we didn't pioneer that, but we see that as a really strong evolutionary uh, pathway. And with that, the stablecoin moves with it. You know, it's that underlying way in which these, these assets will communicate and settle. You're both heading off to Cybos next month. I suspect that this, what we've spoken about today, will be a, a key theme of discussion. What are we expecting to encounter over there? Yeah, I mean, it's it's scattered everywhere. I'm sure Nigel will be asked to speak about a dollar DC to no end. Um, but, you know, panels and I uh, had a look at the agenda recently. It's all over the place. Um, Finextra's hosting a lunch um, that I just saw CBDC dissecting the outcomes and opportunities. And it's talking about a lot of the things that we're talking about here. So, you know, there's some specific discussions around CBDC, around stablecoin, but there's also this whole kind of future of money discussion too, which this will absolutely feature in. Yeah, I, th- I think CBDCs will, will continue to be a strong theme, you know, for, for a uh, considerable period of time until they've sort of found their place. And there's, there is a place. I can't exactly, you know, paint all the, all the colours of it at the moment. But um, this, this, back to this coexistence um, question, you know, we, we, we do believe, and as do our central banks, I think that there will be a coexistence of central bank digital currencies. And in fact, commercial banks are likely to be involved in um, those CBDCs, potentially as distributors, owners, users, um, for a range of use cases. Um, but, but alongside that, you know, the, the bank-issued stablecoins will also have, I believe, uh, an additional um, element of flexibility, programmability that we will be specifically working with customers to, to allow them to design their coins and their, their, their digital assets according to their needs. Um, my suspicion is, and it's not yet to be fully verified, is that CBDCs will, CBDCs will remain quite vanilla by design and not be painted different colours and not be designed for, for different purposes, but rather stay quite like cash today. It kind of looks and feels the same way for everyone. Um, and by design, that's probably a good thing. And then when you, as you move down a spectrum to commercial bank-issued stable coins and even uh, other you know, digital assets, the, the, the creative... Um, opportunity to design something unique for uh, another company, for a customer, for an individual is is vast, right? Um, and that's before you've kind of unlocked the metaverse, which again I don't, I'm not qualified to talk about, but I think that's where this will start to flourish. That was on air by ANZ Institutional. Be sure to like, follow, or subscribe to hear more. This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.